Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. In this series, we're talking about the history of medicine. I'm an historian, I'm not a doctor, but I'm interested in the intersection of medicine, history, and the individual's responsibility to society. And so all the episodes in this series have something to do with this mix of factors that we ought to be more conscious of in a time when we are increasingly vulnerable to viruses, climate change, and other scientific hazards that don't get enough attention from the press or individuals. Too often a hyper-individualism prevails in our society, which takes the form of an unconscious assumption that unless the individual is totally free from all responsibility to others, then the individual is not free at all. It has gotten to the point that many who cry freedom aren't even aware that responsibility even is a thing, as they say, and that freedom is not freedom unless it is absolute. But we've never had absolute freedom, and even on an elementary level, People should be aware of that. A civilized society of necessity exists with freedom and responsibility in a constant state of push and pull. We can't avoid this tension. Sometimes freedom wins out, sometimes responsibility. But the tension is always there. We do not have the freedom to yell fire in a crowded theater that is not on fire. We are not free not to pay our taxes with impunity. In just those two instances, if we exercised this kind of moronic freedom, lives would be lost and civilized society would crumble. The list goes on and on. We are not free to drive a hundred miles an hour without penalty. The constant thread is that freedom for one cannot be allowed to imperil another. It is one of the most basic things that children have to learn before or shortly after they reach kindergarten age. COVID is a curious example of this. Many people are interviewed on TV news shows and say that they're not going to practice social distancing, they're not going to get a vaccine, because their body is their own business. Of course, one of the most elementary facts of the pandemic is that people can give this disease to others by not social distancing, by not vaccinating themselves. And so are we supposed to listen to such arguments and park our brains when we hear them? Do they really think that this argument is going to be persuasive? Is it persuasive to them? It can't really be either. More likely, it is that responsibility is something they just don't consider. A new freedom is asserted, the freedom to insist that 2 plus 2 equals 5, that down is up, and that lies are truths. 
and in the process, we are supposed to find the language of lunacy somehow reasonable. The vaccines have turned out to be something of a modern miracle. A vaccine that you can get totally for free has a 95% success rate. In hospitals around the country, people are still coming in, hospitalized with COVID and in a hair of their lives, but not one of them in many of the hospitals surveyed has come in vaccinated in that condition. Everyone who is at death's door invariably are people who have not gotten the vaccine. Most of the vaccines have proved to be without problems. The Johnston & Johnson vaccine is an exception, but because of the tight controls, it was put on pause for a while to determine the rarity or frequency of problems with that particular vaccine. And it was determined that that vaccine is extremely rare in producing problems. But once again, science is not understood by most people. Most people are suspicious of science. Most people have a very short memory, or they don't believe in memory at all. Well, you may not believe in memory, but memory believes in you. Because if you do not listen to the science of the past, the science that's going to be discussed in these podcasts, we may have to welcome again deadly diseases that we had put in the grave with vaccines from the past and a population today who simply won't believe in them. It's like believing in the sky or believing in the sun. It's not up for belief. The sun exists. The sky exists. The vaccine exists, and it is working to save the lives of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. But because some people will not take the vaccine, they are putting others at risk, even if they deny that that is the case. The science of vaccines being difficult to understand and therefore discuss, let's try another area of science to which the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, richly applies. The science of evolution. Evolution, like vaccines, shares many of the same characteristics. Rock-solid evidence, volumes of scholarship that has extended its reach into far-flung fields like genetics and DNA, and the ability to improve human life by sheltering under the sky of its truths. In fact, vaccines and evolution are obviously related. We need vaccines because of evolution, and evolution can destroy the efficacy of vaccines by doing what evolution does. What separates vaccines from evolution is that evolution is comparatively easy to explain, and its logic relatively simple to grasp and understand. That has not spared evolution from the attacks of those who are anti-science, just as the mountain of facts does not shield it from attacks. When you see so much disregard for so many overwhelming facts, it is clear that it is not evolution that is being questioned, nor even science, but the very existence of truth itself. The barriers to believing in evolution are wholly experiential not logical or rational in the intellectual sense. Our experience in day-to-day life makes us think that the earth was made for us 
rather than we for the world. The anthropic principle makes us view the world through what is good for us as individuals. You hear some people say, for example, well, there must be a divine purpose to human life because look around, the oxygen, the warmth of the sun, everything on earth seems to be made for man. And yet that is not the way to look at it. Human life evolved because the world was as it was, and the only kind of life that could have evolved was the kind of life that would take advantage of oxygen, the sun, and all the other factors of life that are necessary for the plant and animal life that you see all around you. But this is another example of people thinking that human beings are what the universe was made for. Now, the whole idea of a belief in evolution is improper because you don't believe in a scientific truth or fact. You just understand it, and then you act accordingly because you understand it. It's not up for debate. It may be up for testing, but while we test, we tend to believe it because previous tests have shown it to be valid. Now, the barriers to belief in evolution are several. First of all, evolution requires an enormous span of time in order for it to take place. It requires hundreds of millions, if not billions of years for species to evolve into the results that we see all around us. Obviously, you cannot evolve from a lower life form to a higher life form over a relatively small amount of time. And when I say relatively small amount of time, I'm talking about hundreds of millions of years. It would take billions to get small cell organisms to evolve into the large-scale organisms and animals that we see all around us. Modern DNA shows that we are close cousins to every living thing on the planet. We are closer cousins to, for example, the great apes than we are of plants, that's for sure but we are still cousins of every living thing. Now that knowledge could very well cause human beings to be more cognizant of the need to protect the species that are other than us, the species that are not us, but that are cousins of us, because we inhabit a planet in which all creatures have a place, a biosphere where there is a tenuous balance that is caused by the existence of these species, and that it is incumbent upon human beings to protect all life in order to protect its own existence in that tenuous balance of species. There is no reason to think that human beings can fly free of the law of nature that all species are subject to extinction. We need to wake up and understand how we are tied together with other life forms on the planet. But certainly, the fact that the world is 3 billion years old means that there was enough time for evolution to take place. Now, that does not mean that evolution did take place. We need other evidence to support that position. But it was proven in the late 18th and early 19th centuries that there was enough time for evolution to take place. Now, some of this was determined by geological research 
into the crust of the earth and the various strata of the crusts. As you go down into the soil, you go back in time, and we see different life forms in the different levels of the crust. And we can see the evolution of species by the positioning of these species in the various time-determined sections of crust in the geological record of the Earth. The English biologist J.B.S. Haldane said that if you could find rabbits in the Precambrian crust, you could disprove evolution in a flash because rabbits were not evolved at that point. Well, we've looked at the Precambrian crust and we've yet to find any rabbits in it. And so that is a kind of evidentiary support for evolution that bears paying attention to. If you're not going to believe in evolution, then the burden of proof is on you to say, why aren't there any rabbits in the Precambrian crust? But of course, that is not something that the opponents of evolution feel that is their responsibility. The other main factor that impedes belief in evolution is not only the fact that people cannot grasp the nature of time, the deep nature of time, millions and even billions of years unfolding. We cannot grasp the length of time more than a single lifetime, maybe two lifetimes at most. We have trouble thinking about what it must have been like in the 19th century or how long ago the 19th century must have been in human terms. How much more impossible is it for us to think not only of a thousand years ago, but 10,000 years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, a million years ago, and a thousand millions is just one billion, and the earth is three times as long as that ago in its creation. These are time frames that nobody can possibly grasp. But if you understand that this is the time frame we're talking about, then you can grasp that evolution is a possibility. Now, what is the evidence that during that long span of time, evolution really happened? Well, I mentioned one piece of evidence, the geological record. And the geological record is probably one of the most persuasive pieces of evidence for evolution, but it's not the only one. The other piece of evidence that has come recently, relatively recently, is modern DNA and genetics. Because the DNA of our close cousins in the world of animal species, apes, is very close numerically to our DNA. That could not be just a coincidence. That's because they are close cousins of ours. When you go to other more distant creatures like lions and tigers and bears and chimpanzees, their DNA is less similar to ours than our apes, but they're more similar to ours than, say, ants and plants. So we can test the degree to which we are close cousins of a given creature by simply determining the DNA code for each of those species. 
And this has shown that all the species of the world are in a perfect family tree. And someone once said, I just can't believe in evolution because I can't believe that a human being with eyes, nose, brains, hands, feet could be evolved in any span of time from a single cell. But of course, millions and millions of people, billions of people do this all the time. It's called reproduction and it takes nine months. So in nine months, a human being can be created from a cell or two. And that happens in nine months. So it's unclear why evolution is not also understood, given that very understandable example of evolution. Another reason for the inability of some people to believe in evolution is because it defies our day-to-day -day experience, particularly in one area. We never see something that looks like it's been designed that isn't actually designed. For example, if you see an automobile, you know that it was designed. It has headlights, it has brakes. Obviously, these things were designed by human beings to make a car work so that it would function safely and well. If we see a watch, we know that a watchmaker produced the watch because it allows someone to tell time. Clearly, it's not something that animals can use. It's something only humans can use. So it's clear that a human being designed a watch if you find a watch in the forest. So there is almost no instance that I can think of in our day-to-day -day experience where something that seems to be designed has not been designed by human beings. But in fact, evolution is just such a thing. And because we have no experience in this, because evolution appears to be designed, it has all the appearance of design, from the evolution of lower life forms to higher life forms, from simple creatures to complex creatures, with incredible brains, incredible capacity for vision, the ability to understand the universe, the ability to feed oneself. It's almost impossible for us to look at this apparent design and say that some intelligent force must not have designed it. It doesn't make any sense to us. It's not something our common everyday experience gives us any preparation for. But the fact is that Darwin's discovery of natural selection showed that nature in a non-random way, that is with natural selection, can produce species that are more finely adapted to their environment without having to have a plan. What you have to have is a world of competition and a world of scarcity. And that is what we have on planet Earth. Once you have those two things, a world of scarcity and a world of competition, then you have a struggle for that source of life, a struggle for the scarce resources that exist in the world. And of course, because of natural selection, the individuals who are most well adapted to succeed 
will, over a long span of time, again, millions of years, will tend to retain those accidental variations that are not planned, that are not placed intelligently in a human being, but are simply accidental variations in individual creatures in a species. And these accidental variations will then be passed down genetically to the offspring, and those creatures will have a greater chance to live long enough to have offspring to also have those traits. And over time, small advantages can build into larger advantages, and whole species can evolve into whole other species. But again, it takes millions, if not billions, of years. And so this factor that we are not used to apparent design being non-random, but also non-designed, that's the key. The apparent design of evolution is non-random because of natural selection, but it is non-designed because natural selection is not a conscious or intelligent designer. You could say natural selection is the designer, but it is an inanimate object. It is just a fact of life because of scarcity and because of competition. Finally, the anti-intellectualism of evangelical Protestantism in the United States has impeded acceptance of the truth of evolution. Over the past 40 years of teaching college-level history, I have had young students walk up to me and say, my pastor tells me that I can't listen to this. I've also had a student email me that you, professor, may think that you're descended from monkeys, but I don't. Well, of course, we are not descended from monkeys or from apes. We are descended from a common ancestor with chimpanzees and apes. And that is a slightly different thing. But even if we were descended from monkeys, it wouldn't matter much whether we think we are or don't think we are. The question is, are we? And that question never penetrates the consciousness of students because too many pastors do tell them not to think. And it does seem to be a practice of modern evangelical Protestantism to encourage people not to think for themselves. And this is the problem. Because long before this, in the late 19th century, not many years after Darwin published his On the Origin of the Species by Natural Selection, most churches fell in line quite quickly and found no problem with evolutionary biology. They had to accept it because they had to accept the facts. They could not turn away from truth, at least not in the 19th century. Now, in the early 21st century, truth apparently is a needless obstacle to fantasy. Fantasy is much to be preferred to truth if fantasy makes you feel better. And that's all that seems to be important these days in some sectors of so-called American thought. The root of the problem is the idea of literal interpretations of the Bible. It is true that a literal interpretation of the Bible is completely inconsistent with evolution. 
Some interpretations of the Bible say that the Bible considers the world to be only 10,000 years of age. Obviously, that is not compatible with evolution. But the weakest points of the Bible are in its literal elements. Are we to literally believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Are we to literally believe in the existence of Adam and Eve? When Adam and Eve have, in most parts of the world, been reduced to metaphors. Poetic metaphors, to be sure, but in the end, metaphors still. When human beings came into existence about a hundred thousand years ago, give or take a few thousand years, it was impossible to date the birth of the first man. There was no first man or first woman. It is impossible to distinguish early man from his early non-human antecedents. But one would think that the ethics of religion are the really important things that we need to remember or learn from religious ideas. And yet, there is a hang-up among some denominations in American Protestantism with literalism that was, was never a very significant part of religious thought since, say, the 18th century. That's all been swept away by recent developments in American Protestantism. But that, of course, is not to be confused with intellectual activity or scientific understanding. They do seem to occupy separate realms, but one realm continuously interferes with the other. And it isn't evolution that interferes with religion, because the ethics of religion, the faith of religion, is altogether different from the science of evolution. Unfortunately, the literalism of American evangelicism is not content with staying in its lane, but insists on believing that fantasy is the same thing as truth. One hopes for a return to the intellectual liveliness of the late 19th century, when religion and science could operate at the same time with mutual regard for one another and a mutual satisfaction with its own ideas in its own place. Next time on A History of Science, we will look at the history of surgery, the brutal profession. 